This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game, while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of Harvesting Nature. We want to celebrate your love and appreciation for the show so during the month of june we're going to be collecting entries for a giveaway which will will announce on july 1st so there's a link over in the show notes where you can go and enter the contest there's about 10 different ways to enter each one gets you different points but you can go explore that on your own more importantly we'll be giving away a weston meat grinder an autographed copy of eat wild game by Harvest in Nature, Justin Townsend, along with some Traeger sauces and seasonings. So go check out the show notes, click the link, and enter today. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Harvest in Nature Wild Fishing Game Podcast. Uh, I got Justin Townsend here, editor-in-chief over at Harvest in Nature, and we got a very special night. Tonight's our 20th episode, so we've been uh, going strong now for, well, 20 episodes, but um, a couple months and now that with our weekly format, we're increasing frequency. So now we're putting out more content and uh, more places, whatever. But uh, so tonight we got a, a guest with us. He's a local guy, but unfortunately, due to COVID restrictions, we're still chatting uh, via the, the internet, which is unfortunate because we could be hanging out having a nice cold beer instead. But uh, anyway, I'll let him introduce himself. How's it going, guys? Happy to be here. First time uh, being on a podcast. I'm excited. Um, I'm Aaron Young, local um, Key West fisherman, charter captain, and commercial spear fisherman. I've uh, been down here for about seven years. Moved down from Central Florida um, to follow my dream of working on the water. The rest is history. Nice. We also got Dustin with us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. And uh, so tonight, I guess, uh, if you were listening to the last few seconds, you could probably guess we're going to talk about uh, fishing and spear fishing and all those good things associated with the water down here in Key West, uh, since we've got three individuals in near proximity. Um, but really, I think uh, I stumbled across uh, Aaron, actually, we, we've never met in person, uh, but I recognized... I think it was I, I was watching your YouTube channel, uh, and I recognized the place you were dropping off the the fish at, and realized that we we knew some of the same people from when I worked in the restaurant here in Key West at Mellow Cafe, and then realized I think some of your fish may be going to there through uh, a couple of acquaintances, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so which is neat. And correct me if I'm wrong. So there was a dinner back a couple not last year or the year before out at uh at the pier on stock island 
Were you guys some of the guys that put out food, uh, seafood for that? Are you talking about the one where the fish market is now? Yep. We, they did that big long table dinner there. I wasn't actually a part of that. Some of the fish hmm. might have been from me, but I actually wasn't there. But I know um, the guy that puts all that on, Ryan Shapiro, was probably a part of yep. it. Yep, yeah, he, he was. He's a good friend of mine. He um, That's the guys I sell all my fish to. I go directly to them. I think it was, in fact, some of your fish. And uh, if you didn't know it, I think he gave you a little shout-out at the dinner. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's cool. Um, but, yeah, that was it. And then uh, I sort of put two and two together when I saw the, the videos on, on YouTube. And I was like, wait a minute. Uh, I said I definitely want to get this guy on a podcast and, and talk about spearfishing and, and catching fish. And, of course, we're going to talk about eating fish at some point. But um, I think – First off, I'd like to hear a little more about your story, like how you got into it. What uh, motivated you to, to choose the, the, the fisherman life? Um, so I guess I'll start at the beginning. I, my, I grew up fishing with my dad and stuff. Um, like I said, up in central Florida, Port Canaveral, we did a lot of mainly trolling and stuff. We'd come down to the Keys every year, pretty much twice a year uh, for mini season for one. And then we'd hit it earlier in the summer and try and uh, hit the Mahi run. And that was an every year thing for a while. And I kind of got away from it, went to college, um, got, you know, off the water and whatnot, went to college, thought I was going to get a big fancy job. College wasn't for me, turns out. I uh, did about a year and a half and I took a job at the local power company, F Florida Power and Light uh, in Central Florida. I worked there for probably five years, I think, and I got laid off. Um, took my severance and I literally sat down and was like, what do I want to do with my life? And I've always remembered how much I love the keys and I love the water. And literally I sold it. I lived in a three bedroom house by myself. I sold everything I owned except for my truck, my dog and my little 16 foot skiff. And I drove to key West. And, um, when I got here, I just, I did never really plan it on being a fisherman. I just wanted to live here and kind of figure out what I was going to do once I got here. Um, I met so many cool people and um, very helpful people and, and started diving and fishing more. And then it turned into an everyday thing. And then I just finally decided like, you know, this is what I want to attempt to make my living at. And, you know, more and more and more. And here we are. I, uh, I worked part-time jobs on the way. And um, about, I think it was probably four years ago, I became completely self-employed um, running charters and doing the commercial thing. Um, took me a while. It was a huge pain in the ass, but it's here and it feels good. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's awesome. Um, I I would say one question that comes to mind is, uh, how much, how much of your time do you think is divided between the commercial side and and the charter side? So, I mean, on a typical year I'd, I'd go based off of, you know, my income, the commercial stuff is probably only 15 per, 15, 20% max of, of my income. Um, commercially, probably if you put it on a daily, you know, a daily basis or a monthly basis, I probably do two to three, eh, probably three to five days commercial. And then the rest of the month is uh, charters or open for charters. And the, and the reason for that is one, I'm not nearly as good as commercial as I am at charters because commercially you have to fill the boat to make money. Charters, you know, you can fill half the cooler and everyone's happy plenty of fish to take home and um i prefer charters over commercial um because 
I don't have to take nearly as many fish and it's not as big of a hit on the, you know, the ecosystems and the reefs down here, uh, to make a living. So I, I prefer to do charters if I can. Nice. I, uh, I could definitely see that. Um, do you get a mini local or Florida or completely out of town? What, what's your, your average clientele? If you could describe, I'd say, I'd say probably 40% of my people are from, uh, South Florida. Miami, Tampa, St. Pete, get a lot of boys from there. I get a small group from, you know, the Keys. I got, I got some regulars down here in the Keys that um, don't have boats. You know, they'll book me once every other month, which is cheaper than a boat payment if you get a nice boat. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but I'd say probably 40, 50% of my people are from South Florida. And then this last year has been really big. So I'm starting to get people from kind of all over the world. I had last year, I had a guy from Madagascar, a couple guys from South Africa. I've had people from um, like over near the Philippines and stuff. It's really starting to branch out. So it's, it's going well. It's, it's, it's cool meeting new people, but a lot of local love. Do you, do you see it primarily like rod and reel fishing or people want to get spear fishing or? It's probably 60% spear fishing, um, 40 rod and reel. The spearfishing thing has just blown up in the last couple of years. Um, people are, you know, the more accessible it is, you know, um, people are just starting to fall in love with it. And by accessible, I mean like they're seeing the, like with the YouTube and the Instagram, they're seeing all this stuff happen. They want to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. um, so people are looking to get into that field because fishing's fun. I love fishing. I've been doing that my whole life, but spearfishing is so primitive and hands-on and just, it's just an awesome experience. So I think people see the videos and they really want to experience that. You know what I think probably draws me most to, to spearfishing. Like I mentioned earlier, like I'm, I'm very novice in, in spearfishing. When we first moved down to Key West, I had a gun for a couple of years and then we go here and there and then kind of set in the closet. Then I sold it. And then Dustin's like, Hey man, <laughs> Hey man, we should try uh we should try this whole spearfishing thing. And I was like, well, oddly enough, Dustin, I just sold my gun last week, but uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess we'll go find some new stuff. So, and, and we started just dabbling here, you know, around the docks in our neighborhood. And, uh, uh, now we got a group of like five friends that we go out on the weekends and, and throughout the week as we can and, and go hit some spots around. But, um, I think probably what draws me most to it is just the primitiveness. And, and like I mentioned earlier, like it, me being a hunter, it's the closest thing to hunting that I can get without driving a long yeah. way. Well, it, you can see what you're shooting at. That you know, yep, if, that, if I throw if I throw my bait in the water, I might waste it on something or get it caught on something, and you know, which is all part of the fun of it. A lot of people just who doesn't enjoy just fishing, but if I want to go out there and get a fish and eat it, and I'm swimming around, I, I look at that one and say that's the one I want to shoot, and, and you start to eyeball it. Sometimes it gets difficult if you don't have anything to compare it to. You know, you might get one that's yeah. like half in, half inch too small, but for the most part. Unlike Aaron, you were talking about accessibility. Uh, yes, obviously the blowing up with social media and, and Instagram and all that. Um, but I can just take 30 steps that way, jump in the water and start swimming around some docks and get a couple snapper that are legal size that I can eat. 100%. There's a big allure to that where you're like, Hey, this, this is interesting. I can, it's very forgiving. Unlike you go deer hunting, you know, let's say you set up in a stand you get scented or you, you make too much noise or whatever. And then you're not going to get it there. Fish, you can take a shot at it. It'll swim away and almost come full circle and you can take another shot at it. <laughs> That's funny. So 
Yeah, it was definitely uh agree one hundred percent with being able I, I I like fishing, but I like catching more. So <laughs> um, Yeah. I think spearfishing is more like grocery shopping and um Right. Yeah. It's a lot more there's there's no bycatch. Like I either hit the fish I was going for or I don't get I don't get a fish. And there's there's right. no question of like you know, I can throw my lure out there and let it sit in the water for 20 minutes and hopefully something <laughs> hits it or I can dive in the water with a pair of goggles and a spear gun. And I know in about five seconds if there's fish there or not. And if not, I'm going someplace else. Like exactly. Right. Um, it's, it's the motive. Yeah. Motivator. I don't, I think one thing, uh, personally I'm trying to get at and I'm sure, you're more proficient with it is like shot placement and trying not to waste meat. Um, you know, especially like Dustin mentioned, like you're shooting like, you know, inch over legal snapper, you know, whatever we have access to quick. It's like you make a bad shot and like you're, you're wasting half the meat. So, yeah. And it's a commercial that comes into play tenfold because if I got a bunch of holes and fillets, they don't even want the fish. Yeah. So I want, not only did I kill the fish, the fish is no good. I can't sell it. I mean, I'll take it home and eat it, but it'll also, you know, drive the price down. So you get pretty good at shot placement when there's a paycheck on the line. Yeah, I can imagine. Cause that, you know, uh, price of especially, you know, grouper and some of the more high quality fish is not, not cheap. So I could no, imagine. Not in any way. I think that's something that people coming from the hunting world, like, okay, the terrestrial land hunting world, <laughs> getting, getting into the water when it comes to, uh, bow fishing and spear fishing, there's no sights. See, you really got to practice if you want to get that shot placement down. Um, if you're bow fishing, there's the refraction to, to take into consideration. And if you're spear gunning, then it's not like you just kind of point it and hit. Sometimes it might feel that easy. But there's other times you try to take a nice calculated shot and you're, you're surprised that you missed because you didn't line it up right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's different than a gun. You take a gun out, it's easy. You got a little fiber optics, you got you know red dot, you got whatever, but not not when you're hunting fish. That's for sure. So I'm I'm definitely curious, Aaron, how you got into uh, into the commercial spearfishing, if you kind of like stumbled onto it or after you started fishing regularly, if it was intentional or... So honestly, yeah, I did kind of stumble onto it, which is honestly how I stumbled into this whole thing with the, you know, running my own charter business and everything. So I started the charters, um, but I met a lot of people doing that. I met so many people and honestly, a buddy of mine, uh, we were at a bar, a hogfish bar and grill, and, uh, we were having some beers and another friend walked by. He's like, Hey, are you looking for a South Atlantic, uh, commercial permit? And I was like, I'm not, but you know, I'd be interested to hear what kind of, you know, cause typically you lease them. Mm-hmm. To buy one, they're I believe they're around seventy thousand dollars right now, and you have oh, to wow. buy two. You have to buy two, and when you transfer them, one disappears. Anyways, uh, he's like, "You're looking for a South Atlantic permit?" And I was like, "No." I was like, "Why?" He goes, "I got a friend that's looking to lease one for cheap." Um, and I was like, "I'm very interested." Um, and it ended up working out. I lease it from him. So mine is not a South Atlantic Unlimited, which allows unlimited amounts of grouper and snapper on your trips. I have a 225. So per day, I can have 225 pounds of grouper snapper. Um, and I honestly, like I said, or like you asked, I literally stumbled into the permit. I had no idea. I had no intention of being commercial because, like I said, it's a lot harder to be profitable and commercial mm-hmm. than it is, you know, do have a decent day on charters. De- a decent day on charters isn't going to pull a, a commercial paycheck. The guys that 
you know, make a living full-time commercially are some of the hardest working people I've ever met in my entire life. Yeah. And it, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, I could only imagine I've seen and interacted with a lot of people down here that, that live in the commercial fishing world. And yeah, it doesn't leave a lot of time for other activities in life either too. So they're a different, they're a different breed of people. <laughs> yeah. So, but necessary to, uh, you know, life in the keys, life in the rest of the world too. Uh, we talked a lot. It was probably, I think three or so episodes in, we touched a little bit on lobster and, and the lobster economy down here and, and how that sort of shakes out and where the lobster goes from here. And, uh, just, just to kind of see that go full circle. And I'm sure, you know, you get snapper and grouper and other things too, that are going unexpected places from Key West, like. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so with the you said two hundred and fifty pounds, right, of grouper and snapper. Two twenty five. If I said two twenty five, yeah, two twenty five. No, you you. I think you said two twenty five. I just misheard or misremembered or whatever that word is. But (laughs) (laughs) um, mismembered, mismembered. Um, (laughs) Looking at so, do you uh, is other are other species included in that? So, oof, how much time do you got? <laughs> so, you have to have an SPL and an RS to be able to sell fish. An SPL is a saltwater products license. An RS is a restricted species license. There are certain species that fall just under those two permits. The South Atlantic grouper snapper is an add-on. It's like you have a driver's license. You can add a CDL to it or it has been. Okay, that makes sense. That's how okay. that's how it is. So once you have those the SPL and the RS, you can add other permits to it. South Atlantic is one of them. It's South Atlantic grouper snapper. It's any grouper or snapper, and tilefish is under that as well. And then you can add uh, once you have those, uh, like I said, the RS and SPL, you can add a mahi wahoo permit to it, or you can buy a kingfish permit, a swordfish permit, uh, the lobster permit, stone crab. So you can add all those on there. Um, I only have the mahi wahoo and the grouper snapper as of right now. Okay, cool. That's a, uh, I, I didn't know that they, it was that specific commercially. I always kind of wondered some of these things you just in your head as a person who's not, who doesn't walk in that world. You think about it sort of like recreational fishing. Like you go buy your fishing license and you're like, Oh, uh, similar. Like you said, like, Oh, I need my saltwater stamp. I need my lobster card. I need yeah. my crab duck but, stamp. Yeah. But then sort of in that recreation, saltwater fishing license is all encompassing and you have to kind of regulate license, but looking at the way state and federal management agencies are, you're on the commercial side because you're fishing more frequently and more often and, you know, have the opportunity to take more that that it's going to be more closely regulated and closely watched, I guess. Yeah. And as it should be, I mean, yeah, but the whole process, I had some, I had people helping me with it because it is a nightmare to get all those permits in line and make sure you have all the right stuff. It is more yeah. than you could ever imagine. I could imagine it's a, a few trips to the courthouse too. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So have you spearfished, uh, outside of Key West? Um, not more? a whole lot. Um, I go up, I go back home, uh, to Port Canaveral, uh, you know, every other year or so. And I, um, do the American red snapper season. Because down in Key West, um, they're a lot deeper and harder to spear. So I go up there and spear. I've been, 
I've never even speared on the west coast of Florida. Pretty much the Keys, Central Florida, and Fiji. Oh, nice. I went to Fiji one time for 17 days, and I speared. Um, that was pretty epic. A lot, new, a lot of new species and, you know, different bottom structures, and it was pretty wild over there. But yeah, oh. I, honestly, for, for doing it for a living, I, I really haven't got out that much and explored the spearfishing world. <laughs> It's pretty interesting though when you when you get a new species and uh, a new style to adapt to, like even oh, lobster. Yeah. Gulf when I'm going out for lobster hunting on Atlantic side and Gulf side, totally different hiding spots. Yep, one hundred percent. And across the world, the fish. I mean, like they have things that look like snappers over there. They call them something different, but they behave completely different. Mm-hmm. And like I would just assume that. You know, it'd be the same style fish, same style hunting is just completely different ball game. So it's kind of humbling, honestly, uh, to see the different, you know, different types of fish and ecosystem over there and how they behave differently. I, and too, just learning the, the diverseness. Cause I mean, even that's one of the thing that I wouldn't say intimidates me about the saltwater world, but like I grew up freshwater fishing and just trying to understand the more complex environment and more complex behaviors of, of saltwater fish in comparison to freshwater fish and just identifying different fish. Uh, one it's, it's different, but to go other places or, you know, I think there's, there's definitely places around the world that has more diversity in sea life too. And just to meet locals there that are like, Oh yeah, you know, I, I understand this, you know, I understand 300 types of fish and you're just like, <laughs> it's a little intimidating. Cause like you come from, like I, I started hunting like big game first and, and small game, right? But a rabbit's a rabbit. And, oh, look, there's a white-tailed deer or a muley deer. But here, there's hundreds of different variations of fish. I'm like, okay, what's the rule on this one? I'm constantly going to my fish rules app. Yes, and the fact that we have four different, uh, I don't know what you call them, areas to go by, you know, Atlantic Federal, Atlantic State, Gulf Federal, Gulf State. Yep. And you type, multiply that by the amount of species you run into. It's insane. Yeah. Have you had any problems with uh, FWC coming down? Um, no. I mean, I'm always compliant. So a lot of times <laughs> they, they pull up and uh, I'm like, hey, you want to see a big fish? And that just deters their attention immediately. I show them a big fish and then they drive away. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I am thankful for is they do seem pretty reasonable. I mean, if you're if you're abusing the law, they'll put the hammer down. Yeah, but if you have questions or if it's very questionable, like, hey, actually, I could see how you could misidentify this fish, but but this is wrong. You got to throw them back. So I haven't I haven't seen any kind of totalitarian, you know, nightmare example with them. I'm sure others will tell you otherwise, but I am pretty thankful for the run-ins I have had with them. Yeah, and um, I think a big thing is, you know, if you act like a dick, they're going to treat you like a dick. Unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people have that you know, um, I guess preconceived judgment of this guy is going to be a jerk to me. So I'm going to be a jerk when he pulls up. And of course they're going to want to search your boat and measure all your fish. But if they pull up and you're nice and you know, you're, you're doing the right thing and they're they're just, they're out there doing their job. They're not trying to get you in trouble unless you're doing something wrong. Right. And I think so. Um, the number of times that I've interacted with, with game wardens across the U.S. in all the different states. I think every state I've ever lived in and hunted in, not just lived in, but I, I have to say every interaction has been positive, whether it's like I'm 
they see me coming to the trailhead. I'm packing out an animal, and they're just checking my license. Uh, when we were in Wyoming a couple years ago, um, we were doing just that, coming out of a trailhead, and I, I had a bag, so everything was the bag was large enough that the the quarters of the animal was inside of it, so you couldn't see anything. But you know, naturally, we saw headlights turn and park because it was dusk almost. Park in the uh, in the parking lot and he left his lights on kind of shining towards us. And that's kind of a giveaway. Like, you know, it's, it's obviously <laughs> nobody's just going to like bright light you as you're just walking, you know, a quarter mile. Dead giveaway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we got there and it's like, um, we were, I had harvested an antelope doe. So he checked it out. We we're all good to go. And then, you know, after they check you out, then it's sort of, I always find the time to be like, all right, now it's time for question and answer session. Cause I've got yeah. questions rolling around in my head and I know that this guy has got the answers and it's whether or not how, how positive our interaction was, uh, whether or not he's going to answer it. So luckily this guy, uh, we started chatting with, it was me and, and my friend AJ and, uh, AJ had a mule deer tag for the area and we were having trouble finding where the mule deer were located at on the public land. And the guy's like, all right, guys, let me tell you, I'll give you this good spot. He goes, go, go up here like two miles, make a left, go down this dirt road about like three quarters, of the, you know, a mile, mile and a half down. You're going to see this cattle guard. And on there, you're going to see a sign that says like three, four, five. He goes, turn in there you're gonna drive down a gravel road for about five minutes. Then you're going to hit a parking lot. There's a gate. Don't drive through the gate. Park there. He goes, that's a big state land. It's just this big valley with a pond in it. He goes, get there and just uh, set, walk the hills and just glass. And man, we went in there and my buddy pulled. This thing was monster. We saw it. We dipped down in the bottom of the the valley where the pond was, stumbled on a track and then saw a herd kind of up at top of one of the ridges, started following it up. And we get about halfway up there and we start seeing these big tracks, like probably the size of the bottom of my beer bottle here. And uh, we're like, keep going, keep going. We're like, all right, well he's either with the herd or it's from earlier. We get up and we just happen to turn and look up this little hill. And in this patch of a, uh, like chaparral, just bushes, you just see this big set of antlers just like standing there. And we're just like, Holy smokes. But to end that story <laughs> with, uh, with the fact we never would have stumbled on, we never would have even found that place. Had we not had, you know, a good interaction with the game warden and just being like, Hey man, you know, guy to guy, like, most of these guys are hunters and anglers too. And just be like, Hey, you know, we're new here. We've never been to this state, this particular area, like help us out, kind of pick their brain, ask questions, answer questions. And man, we, we were so thankful in the end. And I think that's translated to almost every interaction, uh, with, with wild fishing game anywhere. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And like you said, I think the majority of them for the most part are getting into that field because they want to be outdoors. They are outdoorsmen themselves. They're not, for the most part, wanting to drive around and be jerks to everybody. So. No. Yeah. So I think it, you know, those those jobs are kind of one of the, the least paid jobs usually in the States. They so really are. You, you tend to find people that probably have a passion, like you said. So Least least paid, highest rewarding. Yeah, arguably. Put me on a boat every day. I'll be, oh, shucks. <laughs> I know some uh, some Coast Guard deployments you could go on. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's too easy to talk about spearfishing, and I can't wait to keep talking about it. I wanted to ask a quick question on the commercial side. You brought up a point about um, the 
the impact on the on the reefs and the impact on the environment of all the, the fish that are getting taken are commercial fishermen when it comes to hunting and you get you got your cords when it comes to lobstering you got your places when it comes to hunting deer do commercial fishermen work together to kind of help ease the strain on the reefs or is it all the same as every other type of hunting where they're just like, all right, this is my spot, stay away, or they don't share anything. And then everyone hits the same spot over and over and over again. Um, I mean, honestly, a lot of them communicate and you kind of got your territory. It depends on what type of, you know, commercial spearfishing is one thing because I'm mainly looking for a certain type of fish. Uh, you know, a lot of the commercial fishermen, uh, one of the most popular down here is commercial yellowtailing though. And, um, the other one I will say is the lobster traps. So a lot of those guys have areas that they hunt and they're very aware of who hunts where and you, you stay off those spots for the most part. There okay. are exceptions to everything, but um, I'd say there's definitely a sense of, you know, them working together and trying not to put too much pressure on one area. Cause if you, if you beat it to death, there's not going to be anything left and then nobody wins. So okay, um, I think definitely there is, there is some of that going on for sure. Yeah. Good to know. I wonder if, if the approach looking kind of people rotate around different, different areas, kind of like you think of like crop rotation or this and that, you're like, well, this year, you know, this, this specific area is not good for yellowtail, but you know, maybe I'll leave it alone and then come back next year and sort of try it out. I don't know. Just a theory in my head of, of probably if I was in those shoes, maybe what I would think. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know enough about it. I've talked to a few guys. I'll be honest with you. I'm probably one of the worst, yellow tailers ever i tried <laughs> i tried commercial yellow tailing and uh, after uh, several failed trips I, I gave it up pretty pretty quickly <laughs> that's fair um so looking at seasonal fishing uh i know we talked a little bit about targets targeted species and kind of covered that so we know kind of what you're fishing for when when are your seasonal variations uh, of what you're looking at or are you fishing for general things all year? Um, so a lot of it's based on, you know, what the government or, you know, the, the fishing game allows us to hunt. So we get our big run of grouper at the beginning of May and that, that goes all the way through December. So the groupers pretty much stay around most of the year as far as the commercial side goes. Um, I'd say on average we're hunting groupers, mutton snappers from literally May until December. Uh, and then, that kind of overlaps with the Wahoo season, which is another big season. It's good for commercial and charters, both our grouper and the Wahoo. Um, that, that starts around, I mean, they show up kind of early sometimes, but say October through March comfortably. The Wahoo season's super popular down here. And then one of the, you know, the other big one being Mahi, which is pretty much all summer long. And realistically, if you look hard enough, you can find Mahi here pretty much year round. Yeah. I've heard. Yeah. Um, one thing I was going to, so as far as grouper, so recreation for grouper, like average, depending on the species, we have several different species of grouper here. I think that's correct to say. Yeah. Uh, variety of grouper. We'll just say that. Yeah. <laughs> Less scientific. Um, the variety of grouper here, we have several, but they range in size requirements. Do the, on the commercial side, do you follow the same, uh, same length requirements or is it varied? Yeah. Yeah. So they're for the commercial side, they're pretty much, um, they're all the same as the recreational. I believe there are some variations on size limits for the golf side of commercial opposed to recreational, but I don't have any of the golf, um, 
grouper permits. I'm not allowed to harvest them in commercial quantities over there. But uh, yeah, we follow all the same. And quite honestly, I don't even like, for example, black groupers, 24 inches. I typically don't harvest a black grouper under 26. If I can, if I can, you know, avoid that because the yield off of a 24 inch black grouper, it's although it's enough to, you know, eat, obviously that fish has a lot more, you know, it can give in a few years. So. That's good. That's a good, uh, a good thought. Um, that, that's one thing that I struggle with just to be honest, like when I'm out shooting, if I see a, a handful of fish on the, on the reef, I can kind of compare them. Um, but if I just have one fish and I have nothing to compare it to, I might think it's 24 inches and then I shoot it and it's like 22. I'm like, Oh man. And then I just, which for group might be fine. But when it like for us, it's hogfish recently yeah. that we've been going. So you know how many 15 to 15 and a half inch hogfish I've shot? I'm like, ah, man. Well, doing it enough. I, when I come up to a spot, I, I tell like if it's, you know, it's a charter, I tell them and I look them in the eye. The hogfish you see and scream at me and tell me it's big enough is 15 inches. Do not shoot it. And there's always one person. <laughs> there's always one that shoots it. And we measure it, and it's 15 inches. And I'm like, I told you. Oh man, it's just it's one of those things. It's I mean, it's so hard. You can't measure a fish. I try to talk people through it because I really hate. It's one of my like. It takes a lot to upset me, but you know, killing undersized fish gets under my skin a little because it's all of our resource. You know, we all mm -hmm. want it to last. Right. Um, and a lot of times I'll get in the water with people just to avoid those situations. So I'd like, you see that one? Don't shoot that one. That one's not big enough. And I try to point out the sizable fish um, to avoid that. But well, I think but it's you can't measure a fish in the water. So I think it's okay. important to uh, point out to listeners too that when you're underwater, things often look bigger than they really are. Right <laughs> <laughs> <So> here. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but. Yeah, it's uh, there's some challenges, some unique things that that I never thought about getting into it, and now as I go through time, I'm like, wait. And uh, I think to touch on Dustin's point, it it's made me. I think the couple times I I have accidentally shot undersized fish, it's made me think more and be. I will pass more on. I'll pass on more fish. Yeah, be more choosy. Yeah, yeah. I I just I mean. I'll be honest, like Saturday we went out and I saw a group of four hogfish and one of the four may have been size, but I wasn't comfortable enough to take the shot and I didn't. And you know what? For the rest of the day, I didn't have an opportunity to shoot another fish just based on our time being out. But I was like, at the end of the day, I, I felt more responsible by not taking the shot than I would have felt bad if I had. So I don't know. Yeah, that's good. I like that. It's a, a lessons learned, but... After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash waypoint. That's mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
so we talked a little bit about spear fishing, rod fishing in comparison. Um, do you do a lot? I already asked so for the charter side, but you personally, do you do you do still do a lot of rod fishing or? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've been rod and reel fishing longer than I've been what they call free diving nowadays. When we were kids, uh, we just called it snorkeling and we went down to the bottom <laughs> in 60 and 70 and picked up sand because it was a, a game and see so if could go to the deepest. But, um, I do quite a bit of rod fishing still. And even on the commercial side, like the commercial deep dropping or, um, rod and reel mahi or wahoo, whatever it may be. Ah, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I've watched some of the deep drop videos and too. Could you explain a little bit to people who may not know the process of like deep dropping and sort of, uh, you know, you've got some unique equipment that you use as well. Just to kind of paint yeah. a picture. Yeah. So pretty much deep dropping is, um, and the keys, the, the bottom, the, the bottom depth drops so quickly. We have a lot of areas we can get to that hold deep water groupers and deep water tiles and snappers. Um, and to harvest them efficiently, we use electric reels and these big giant weights and, you know, heavy leaders and stuff like that. So pretty much we go around and you have to have a really good transducer to mark these deep rocks in 500 to a thousand feet of water. Um, you're using five pounds of weight um glow in the dark rigs and lights and it's quite a um quite a task reeling up five pounds of lead from 800 feet if you've ever tried it so you know everyone has uh, kind of switched over to using these electric reels to make it more efficient some people frown upon it but if you've ever tried to reel like i said five pounds up from that depth you do it once in a day and you're done let alone trying to do it multiple times in a day and on a commercial level commercial level excuse me is a uh completely different story so it's really well, it's the, pure, the purest too right like you're always going to have the ones that want it to be more challenging than it needs to be yeah i i agree with that and sometimes we honestly sometimes for um just a challenge or just to try and break a personal best sometimes we'll go out there with just hand crank and try and you know hand crank up these big groupers and stuff uh, you get a lot less drops and opportunities in a day but you get to say, Hey, I hand cranked this, you know, my personal best snowy grouper from 800 feet of water. And in those days we're doing it for fun. Obviously we're not doing it commercially to try and make a dollar, but um, right. you can't make everybody happy. If, if it's one, it's not the other. What do you have a favorite species you like to catch rod and reel? I'd probably say cobia and not so much down here. Um, I do enjoy catching them down here, but the style of which we used to catch them back home, um, the manor, the big manta rays would come into the beach where I grew up and we'd get, we'd have uh, towers on our boats and we'd follow the manta rays around the cobia, follow the manta rays and you'd sight cast them. And that, that probably is one of my favorite types of rod and reel fishing. Um, if I had to do it, something about the, the sight casting and following them and locating them is just so exciting. And there's big schools of them and it's just, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. I, I've been following a lot of the, especially like redfish, but a lot of the backcountry like flats fishermen, uh, and and sort of diving into that world. And I think the sight casting most is becoming more and more interesting to me because you have that interaction point you you mentioned of like you can see the schools, you know they're there, and it's just like yeah, this this it's is a, ba a battle of wits at that point. Yeah, you're trying to yeah. You're like there they are. Like, can I get them to take the lure, or take the fly, or you know whatever method you're using? And, and I think that's intriguing because it takes out that element of fishing that I dislike as much. The big question mark of like, are they here? <laughs> 
And I, I think me, I'd rather spend more time driving around or, you know, moving around trying to find the fish. And then once finding them, figuring out how to get them onto the line versus, versus just not knowing anything at all, I guess. That's weird. Yeah, maybe, it's, I, maybe, I agree with that. maybe it says something about my personality, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the second thing I was going to ask is, uh, you mentioned that. So, I noticed on the video sometimes that based on how the once a fish is on one of the electric reels and how the end of the rod is moving, you guys sort of play a guessing game of like what what kind of fish it is. I was wondering if if you could give me any insight because I was curious. Like, man, he must uh, obviously you're, you're a good fisherman, so you frequently catch fish. But how do you tell the difference in different types of fish on the line? So. Uh, there's no, there's no exception to just do it, you know, rep repetitiveness, mm -hmm. or repetition, whatever you want to call it. Um, a lot of people are surprised by that and especially charters and they're like, what do you think it is? And I'll tell them what it is and it'll come up and I'm right. But the, each fish behaves so differently, not just the way they eat, but on the way up. So for example, a snowy grouper is a big thump. They fight for about the first hundred feet and then their swim bladder fills up so that they just become dead weight and they just kind of sit there. The rod will be doubled over, but the rod won't still be looking like a fish is pulling on it. Tile fish fight the entire way up. I don't know why they can be 10 feet from the surface or 10 feet off the bottom. They are kicking the entire time. So if the rod is actively showing like something's on the other end, yanking on it, it nine times out of 10, it's going to be a tile fish. The barrel fish is a really unique fish. That's not some, something that most people see. Barrel fish, I'll say, is the, the pelagic fish of the deep water. They don't hang typically on the bottom. They're typically 50 feet off of the, like a pinnacle or something. Those fish completely go berserk when you hook them. They will swim straight up, so it looks like your line completely broke off, like it'll go completely slack, and then it'll dive back down real hard, do that over and over, and it, it just looks like, looks like someone's like a person's down there just messing with you that's what a barrel fish is um and those are probably the four main species we catch and all are such a like i said a unique behavior i can pretty much 95 percent of the time i can tell you what's on the other end the tiles there's two of them golden and uh, uh blue line those you can't really tell the difference on the only way you could tell those apart is the area that you're fishing because some areas will hold goldens and won't hold blue lines um, but yeah, that's pretty much how I, I figured it out. <laughs> Just seeing it over and over. That's cool. It makes me think about being as a kid and learning like catfish strikes versus bass strikes, all those things. Just as you said, and it, it didn't, I realized after I answered the question and you jogged my memory, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I used to yeah. recognize that. So, um, yep. I, I think it's really neat and it's, a. Uh, you know, like I told you earlier, I appreciate your videos and you definitely give a lot of insight. So I recommend if anybody has the uh, has the opportunity to go over and, and check out your YouTube channel. Was it Key Key West Waterman, right? Yeah, Key West Waterman is yep. the name of it. It's good. It's got some good stuff in there, insights into both the spearfishing world and rod and reel world. Yeah, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to be um, educational, but not give up too much, and pretty much just entertain. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun for me. I'm doing the stuff anyway, so I figured I might as well film it. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of educational stuff, I was going to ask you. So, people who are looking to get into spearfishing, do you have any tips that you would give? Um, not necessarily instruction, but just just tips. Um, I'd say first and foremost, if you're serious about it, take a 
take an FII class, uh, you know, free diving class, get your bearings. And once you decide free diving is for me, stay in your lane. Don't get ahead of yourself. It is extremely dangerous. Um, a lot of the, especially the younger kids, they play this game where they want to just go deeper and deeper and deeper and try and beat each other. And it's a competition. It is, it's an extremely dangerous sport. People die every, you know, numbers of people die every year that shouldn't just because they're not being safe. They're just, you know, diving irresponsibly. They're trying without to, a buddy, like shallow trying, water blackout. Yeah. They're trying to get ahead of themselves. Like I said, it turns into that competition thing, which is, it's, it's, it's fun. You know, it's good to be competitive and, you know, challenge yourself, but you just got to be smart about it. Stay in your lane. Don't get ahead of, of your ability levels. I think those are, those are great, uh, great recommendations. I think, especially being out there, you, the only thing I equate it to is being in the middle of nowhere, but on land, but you have that option is like, you can walk out. You know, if, if you get lost in the woods, you get disoriented, you sort of find your way. You're like, all right, well, you know, I know the road is that way. I know there's a river that way. And I follow it when you're in the ocean, you're in the ocean. Like, yep. Yep. And you're out there. So, uh, you're, a lot you're of a very small fish in a very big pond. Yep. And a lot of the times that doesn't set in until you're like in the moment and you're like, oh no, this could go bad. <laughs> yeah. You thought things appeared bigger underwater before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then all of a sudden, a nurse shirt comes along. And like, ah. but, uh, oh, so that did uh, that jog my memory. Thanks, Dustin, for that thought. So I saw uh, in your most recent video, you, you guys were cruising along and, and sped past that great white shark. Did you guys ever see it again? No. Oh, I don't even want to talk about it. I'm so butthurt. So, so go we ahead. Were, was, uh, that was that Costa or? What's that? Was that Costa, the the shark that they've been tracking? That's down what here? I was gonna ask. I didn't ask its name. I didn't get a chance. So, <laughs> <laughs> Why, so uh, I was. We were heading out. We were heading out in the morning, and uh, it was one of those days. It was just oil, complete glass. And I saw a. Actually, I didn't. My buddy Will was with me, and he saw a dorsal fin. Nine times out of ten, if there's a big dorsal fin on the surface, it's a hammerhead. I don't know why hammerheads love being on the surface. So I kind of veered towards it and I didn't slow down as quickly as I should have. It was like last minute he saw it and I kind of turned because I was almost going to hit it. So I backed off real quick and kind of turned towards it a little. And um, it turned and kind of did a half circle, like a 180. And then the sun, the glare of the sun came off of it and I saw the head and the belly. And I realized it was a white. So I threw the boat neutral and turned it off, trying not to scare it. And it slowly just went, it kind of started to go under the surface. And I told Will to watch it. I was like, watch it. And I ran to the front and started throwing my dive gear on. And he's like, it went down, it's gone. So I started cutting up Bonita. I'm driving around. I'm just trying to like chum this thing back to the surface and it never came back up. I was so upset. Oh um, man. So, uh, if you have your track, so I think online, what Dustin was talking about Costa, they said they're, they're tracking a, a female great white in the keys right now. And, uh, if you might be able to overlay your track for that day on, I, on the I, tracking device. I'd be willing to bet. Yeah. So, uh, I saw that was a white, they're unmistakable when you see them. I saw that today and I thought about, it. I was like, man, that's perfect. Cause we're going to, I, you know, I knew you were upset about it, but uh, I was like, uh, maybe I'll bring it up and see, maybe, <laughs> maybe he took a look at it, but, um, no, that's gotta be a cool experience regardless. It was cool just to see one. I'll be honest. It would, you know, it would have been pretty epic to swim with it, but, um, that's the first one I've ever seen in the keys. I've had some friends that have run into them, but 
uh, it was pretty cool just to get a glimpse of it and see how, you know, the mass of them, uh, how much more uh, majestic they are than the other sharks we see on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So with that, you mentioned chumming and I, I had it uh, in my mind to talk a little bit about chumming and spearfishing uh, related. Do you, do you do a lot of chumming when you, you spearfish? Depends. It depends on the species and the area I'm in. <clears throat> um, there's some areas I will not chum. Uh, sharks are just too bad. They're, they're notorious. They're, the second you get there, they greet you. They're ready to go. They know the drill. They know mm-hmm. what a spear gun is. They know what fishing rods are like. They, I will not chum in those areas just for, uh, for pure reason of safety. Um, right. You're, you're their meals on wheels. Yeah, exactly. They know that the boat pulls up and they know dinner bell, they're ready to go. But, um, if I'm in, you know, if, if I'm in an area I'm comfortable with, you know, the sharks haven't been that bad. Yeah. We do quite a bit of chumming. Uh, nice. it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty effective in bringing fish in. I mean, they're looking to eat just as much as we are. So. So I've been one of the spots we've been fishing lately. There's a rumor of a, a large lemon shark that goes around. They said he's not attracted by the blood in the water, but he's learned the sound of the spear gun. Allegedly. Yeah. One, I'm telling you right now, 100%. The, the second they hear those bands click, sometimes I'll just pop the band. Like if you have your spear gun loaded and you pop the band, if there's a shark around, they will come fight you. Huh. I get a, I, I got a little nervous this week. I realized like my bands um, on them. I have this like really crappy gun, but it like the bands rattle if you move it in a certain way. And I'm like, it's just going to be me just here swimming along in the ocean and my bands rattling, no fish around. And the sharks will be like, Hey man, how's it going? <laughs> you got any of those fish for me? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, do you ever have any bad run-ins or questionable run-ins? I've had a couple. I've never been nipped. I've I've been I've had them headbutt me a couple times. Um, they do that test bite where they pretty much close their eyes, open their mouth, and just full bore in the direction they think a fish is. And I've unfortunately been in that path, but not the teeth. Normally, it's I get hit by the head. Hmm. Uh, I had one really bad one. It was either the beginning of this year or the end of last year. Uh, we went out for wahoo's. Me and my friend Will. Um, we caught a wahoo and we were like, I was like, screw it. You want to jump in and see if we see any? Um, so we jumped in immediately. One swims by. So I shoot it, it takes off. I start, um, retrieving it and bull sharks are on us immediately, like six or seven of them bad. And uh, I got the fish probably 50 feet from me and they come in and the fish evaporates. They eat it within a matter of seconds. So normally once that happens, all fine and dandy they got their meal they're still worked up but they leave you alone so i start pulling the shaft towards us and one just bum rushes me and i didn't realize it. i was swimming back to the boat i had completely taken my um, attention off of the sharks which was a bad idea but in my experience that's what happened so i did which was my mistake and i feel something hit me in the groin and i thought it was will headbutting me or something i was like what the heck was that and it hit me so hard it like almost knocked the wind out of me and i put my hands straight down to like try and push what I think is will away from me and I feel the sandpaper and Uh, I look down down and my hands are on a bull shark's gills Uh. came up head butted me pretty much in my kind of hip groin area and turned and I push off and like literally just kind of pushed him off of me. He was probably about seven, eight feet. It was a big shark. I had a pretty, (laughs) pretty meaty bruise from it, but uh, that one that's that's one that stands out uh, in my head most recently. Yeah, bulls aren't very friendly. <laughs> they call them bulls for a reason. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
that's one of the things that I think makes me more uncomfortable about being in the water. I'm definitely a land guy over a water guy, and there's reasons <laughs> like that. <laughs> I'll take a, I said I'll take a shark over a bear any day. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think you know you like to think you pre- mentally prepare yourself for situations before they happen. It's like when I do the the math in my head of like, could I could I deal with a bear? Could I deal with a shark? I'm like, I think I'd rather deal with a bear. <laughs> <laughs> oh no way. <laughs> Well, I think I think that's one thing that everyone needs to know up front, though. If you're going to be ready to get into spear fishing, you're going to have shark encounters. It's just part of the territory. Um, we've gone out how many times in the Atlantic side, even even on the Gulf side, right outside, we saw those two reef sharks. And I went out on like the very next weekend. I go out and uh, shoot a grouper, and we had by the end of it, when we're all in the boat, everyone counted about four reef sharks you know, doing figure eights around us because we shot a couple of fish. They smelled it and they were, they were enjoying it. So that's going to happen. I think that's a really good point that, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand if you're making the conscious decision to go spearfishing, you're in their world. You're a visitor. Um, you're, you're putting yourself at risk. You're, you're signing that waiver. Mm -hmm. So when I see people get bit by sharks and they go and kill all these sharks, I'm like, I mean, I get it, but I, I get that you're upset that the shark bit somebody, but you're making that decision to go out there. Right, right. Well, yeah, you. I mean, you know, you're competitor as well. Like on top of yeah. that, yeah, we're both working for the same the same prize here, and that they're just as just as willing to do whatever it takes as I am. So, yep, I'm not it, mad at them when they come at me. I completely understand it. Yeah, I think just understanding that notion of like it. The, the the chance of running into them spearfishing is higher than than regular fishing because regular fishing you're going to be standing in the boat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You'd be surprised how many spearfishing charters or uh, fishing charters I get, and we'll pull up to a spot, getting ready, and they'll say, "Are there sharks here?" I'm like, "Are you serious?" <laughs> I'm like, I, "I'm like, I got a trick for you. Lean over, taste the water. If it's salty." There's sharks here. Right? <laughs> like, oh no, it's okay. They winded us. We're good. <laughs> yeah. Do you get much into fly fishing at all? I did it very little as a kid. And if you handed me a fly rod right now, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I caught a mahi with it when I was like eight, and that was my victory. I retired. I hung up, I hung it up, and nice. I called it a W. Nice. Do you, do you ever go out for tarpon? Other just regular real fishing or have I've you? Done it, I've done it a couple times. Um, the most fun I ever had doing it was on a paddleboard. I kept hooking big ones and they would tow me around. It was the most fun <laughs> I ever had. I never actually got one to me to, you know, call it landing it, but um, I do it here and there just, just kind of for fun with friends, but I, I wouldn't consider myself a tarpon guy by any means. Yeah, that's a that's a definite uh, growing sect of people. I would say of fishermen. Yeah, one hundred percent. I like to eat things. Unfortunately. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I'm the same too. It's like why why I spend my time. I understand like, oh man. All right, I'm gonna go to you get in this in the hunting world. You get in a big debate of like trophy versus meal versus meat eater versus all you know all this stuff. And it's oh yeah. a lot. It, at the end of the day, everybody, you know, for the most part, everybody likes to eat. And also, if you have a nice quality deer, you're not going to pass up on it. Or a nice elk, you're not going to pass up on it and be like, no, you know what? I'd rather shoot that little small one over there. Because in the <laughs> end, they're going to give you the same amount of meat. Or, you know, maybe the bigger one's going to give you more. But, uh, 
when you look at it that way, it's like in the fish world, the difference being like I harvest a tarpon. Like I want to do it. It's it's one of my goals this summer is to to get on a tarpon. I want to do it just because for the experience, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, I know I know one hundred percent my sentiments. Like halfway through the day, I'm going to be like, all right. I've spent half my day trying to catch this tarpon. I've either have or haven't caught it. Now I'm ready to catch some fish that I can take home because nobody in my house is going to be enthused about a picture. They're going to be like, all right, so what are we eating tonight? <laughs> but that was, that was one of our, our really good podcasts we had in the past was about that, about catch and release. If you remember like with Corey, he brought up some very good points. Um, sometimes it's about trying to, to get into the mind of the animal and, and it's a challenge trying to catch it. So I could see how so many people are, are drawn to that. You know, you want to see, like you talked about, you know, uh, spot and sight fishing and go, all right, there they are over there. There's a t- the tarpon in this area. How do I trick it into taking my bait? Cool. I got it. Got my picture. I outsmarted it. Boom. But then there's other people that say, Hey, if I'm going to put the time and effort into getting anything, I want to be able to eat it. Yeah, I mean it's it's fair. Different strokes for different folks, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. Everyone's different. I got no judgment either on either end. No. I just know I, I prefer fish tacos over a picture. Yep. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. Um. Yeah, definitely. And I will say too, I'll, I'll point this out. And this is like I said, I'm I'm in favor of tarpon fishing, but prior to tarpon fishing being identified as like a trophy fish for the fight that they were considered like a trash fish. Like nobody wanted anything to do with them. Well, lobster was trash food too. What was that? Lobster was trash food back in the day as well. I don't know, man. That kind of how far, how far back in the day are we talking? <laughs> like 40s, 50s, it was a bottom feeder. It was considered junk. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. We'll get my history up real quick. All right. Yeah, you better Google that. Here at Harvest in Nature, we are known to cook a variety of wild fish and game in a variety of ways. Probably one of my favorite methods is to cook in a smoker. Traeger Grills has some of the best products out there. Their pellet grills aren't just grills. they are smokers and ovens too. Anything you can do in the oven in your house, you can do on the Traeger. You can make desserts. You can grill steaks. You can use cast iron pans and braise tough cuts. You can allow roasts and briskets to smoke all day until they're tender and delicious. You can even use it to make jerky. Their variety of pellets are also very impressive. The different flavors of wood allow you to pair with your meat or fish or vegetables and give it the most flavor that you can create. They even have varieties created specifically for your next wild fish or game meal. While we're talking about that, so, Nan, see, look at this. I, I told you we would naturally migrate into subjects. Um, so now we're on the food subject already, which is good. <laughs> so let's talk uh, your favorite your favorite s- species to catch to eat. Wahoo. Wahoo? If I had to eat one fish the rest of my life, it would be a wahoo. Why is that? I can eat it raw, a sushi. I can sear it. I can do it. Uh, sashimi i can bake it grill it anything it's it's the all-around fish the only thing it's lacking is a little bit of fat a little more fattiness but um it's extremely versatile what's your your least favorite to eat yep hmm 
Probably, ooh, you're not going to like the answer. A lot of people aren't. Probably Yellowtail Snapper. That's fair. I think it's, it's uh, as far as snappers go, it's extremely mushy and overrated, but um, it's kind of a staple down here. I'm probably going to get some negative feedback on that, but I, I'm not a big fan of it. I prefer, I would take a, any other snapper over uh, a yellowtail any day and any mm. other fish, quite honestly. I say, just like we just said, different strokes for different folks. Like, hey man, <laughs> if you don't like it, you don't like it. That's fine by me. You know what? I did a, uh, oh man, we did a, a side by side comparison the other day of some some fish that we caught uh, that we shot and we had like it was a grouper we had snapper we had yellow jack and I can't remember what the other one was but I ended up preferring the yellow jack over the grouper and the snapper yellow Just like jack the the consistency incredible. and flavor and I cooked them yeah. Well, yeah, I, uh, I cooked them the same. I uh, salt. Well, no, same way. Salt, pepper, a uh, little bit of garlic powder, pan seared, all of them. Just like nothing special. Didn't try to dress them up, but I prepared them all the same exact way. And we did a taste test just of of those. Well, there was another one too. I can't remember which one it was, but um, and yeah, I ended up preferring the the other two, not the more popular fish, which I think is interesting because that's generally how. I, I would conceive fish species get popular people. They're easy to catch, you know, off and on. And then they're, they're available. So, yeah, I think yellow Jack's one of the most underrated fish in the Florida keys, man. I, yeah. Uh, that it, I was delicious. We loved it. The one that we shot and that was the first one I'd ever shot. So I was pretty happy about that. Dustin, you did your research. What's the answer? Lobster. Lobster. So looking it up, Got a quick result. How lobster went from prison food to being an expensive delicacy. So, so back in the day, it was just considered a, a bottom feeder crustacean. You know, it was easy to catch and and feed out. Huh. That's surprising. But, yeah, that yeah, time, that's oh, that surprised me. Strange times back then. Yep. I wonder. Been great back then. You didn't need tags or any limits. <laughs> yeah sure there's a lot of lobstermen that are pretty pretty unhappy about those comments lobsters <laughs> <laughs> lobsters so um do you have a favorite recipe that you go to like your go-to recipe when you um i'd say most commonly um because wahoo i don't get very often mm-hmm. the majority of my fish i'm either just straightforward uh pan sear and blackening and whatnot but there's a recipe my buddy Matt Conrad taught me, um, and it works well. I actually did it with Yellowjack recently. It was incredible. Uh, works well with grouper, snapper, any white flaky fish, really. Um, salt, pepper, olive oil. You get a cast iron skillet so hot you think it's going to explode. Sear each fillet maybe 20, 30 seconds on each side and have the oven preheated at 400 and throw it in the oven to finish it off. And when you sear it so hard on each side, it holds all the moisture in. Just put a little chunk of butter when it goes in the oven and it comes out and it kind of just breaks all the flakes apart. It is just to die for. Oh man. I think butter and fish is like the match made in heaven. (laughs) I do it with snowy grouper, tile fish, any of the snappers. I did it with yellow Jack most recently because I love yellow Jack and everything else. I was like, well, why wouldn't it work for yellow Jack? And um, my girlfriend and my roommate were like, this is probably some of the best fish we've ever had. 
Aaron, are you a skin on or skin off guy? Uh, skin off. Okay. I'm, I'm the odd man out. A lot of people don't like the skin. I love it. I don't know why. Really? Yeah. Uh, it I, depends, got a, I, got a funny story. I got a funny story about that. Uh, my roommate is, is a really picky eater, hates anything textured. I get a lot of swordfish. Um, and when you when we fillet them, you just um, chunk them up and leave the skin on because it's easier to freeze them that way, and they're really a pain to skin because they're bigger. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, gr I grilled him some swordfish, and he brought his plate back up to the kitchen, and it was there was nothing on it. Normally, there's a, a flake of skin all the way down the back. And I was like, what would you do with the skin? He's like, I ate it. I was like, you ate the swordfish skin? He's like, yeah, are you not supposed to? I was like, I don't know, but I never have. <laughs> 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 never had swordfish. The skin is really thick and chewy, almost like gum or something. Huh. Well, I ain't good enough chicken, but like, like I won't eat stingray skin, but I'll eat, I'll eat fish skin. Snapper, no. absolutely. I, mean, yep. I just don't take the time to scale it. I mean, if, if I scale them and I don't mind it, I just I don't go out of my way to leave it on there. So with that, I guess we'll we'll dive into the world of some some harvest in nature recipes. I'll uh, I'll talk about these and and everybody that listens to the show regularly know that we we link all the recipes in the show notes. So whatever podcast platform you're listening to, you just go in the show notes there, scroll down, and you'll see a recipes section um, with all these delicious things we're talking about. So most recently uh, during COVID. You know, we were at one point pretty much just restricted at home. So you kind of had to go with what what you had. So we were doing that's actually kind of the more where we started spearfishing more consistently for us because it's like we had the time off from work. And, uh, you know, what better way was to go jump in the water? The weather was pretty nice for a little while during the beginning part of it. So I always have to think about. You know, it's me, my wife, uh, my daughter, and my, we have now a three-month-old son who doesn't obviously eat fish, but one day he will, hopefully. And uh, so this one, I was thinking about my daughter because she was a lot from home and sort of struggling with being at home versus being in a normal social place she was. So I threw together, uh, you know, you see fish sticks at the store, right? And frozen food sections, you go there and like, we, we try to avoid buying a, a lot of processed food and try to do everything ourselves so i came up with a recipe to sort of mimic the fish sticks in the in the store so just took uh what i call wild fish fingers and then made up some a delicious mashed potato recipe that dates back to to one of my first restaurants that's still parts of it are still from the original recipe and parts i've kind of adapted over time but Basically, you, you follow the same steps uh, as, as breading fish as you normally would, but the difference is you're not going to fry it. Uh, the one thing is you're going to be using some Italian seasoning, and I think that's what what gives it that sort of uh, fish stick out of the box taste, I, if you can, <laughs> to not to not uh, demean the recipe, but it's definitely worth it. I mean, it was a big big hit at home uh, with the family, so I was pretty excited about that. And then another recipe, actually, I think uh, this one's from one of our writers who wrote for us uh, a while ago, and he actually took a trip down to Key West and did some fishing on his own. But he ended up making uh, enchiladas, taking a lot of what what he had harvested. I don't think I've ever met enchiladas I don't like. Man, there's just something about it. Cheese and sauce, you can fill them... <laughs> You can fill them with just about anything, like yeah, seafood enchiladas, you know, 
beef enchilada. I mean, it doesn't matter. I love them. So you use a pound and a half of firm seafood. So fish, shrimp, crab. You you could even mix it up. Um, I had. It was funny when we were also spearfishing that time. I discovered uh, like stone crabs, but not in the way that you think of them. Like, hey, go throw out your stone crab traps and catch them. Uh, I I stumbled on some videos and was. Uh, doing a little self research and and stuck my hand in some holes and pulled out some stone crabs. Uh, doing like free diving and stuff, which yeah, that's how I do it. Saves yeah. a lot of time. It does, and it's a uh, you know you either go out and you you hit them or you don't. But it was funny because we were going out. We're like, all right, we're gonna go spear fishing today, and we're gonna go swim around and check out some spots. And we go do that and wouldn't see any fish, but we'd see like stone crab holes and end up pulling up crabs. And then some days we're like, all right, we got this area over here that we know holds stone crabs. So we're going to go, you know, check out for stone crabs. And then one of us would be like, let me just take my gun just, just in case. And then we end up shooting like five or six fish. So it was always <laughs> backwards. That sounds about <laughs> right. Everything. But, uh, I would definitely use probably some of those, those stone crabs and some enchiladas. I don't know how you guys like to eat them. Um, I'm trying to play around with different recipes with the stone crabs other than just the, the traditional sort of steam or boil and peel and eat, which is still great. Let's see. And last on the list, I, I've got a uh, whole grilled snapper. So just doing it. We talked about uh, fish skin. This is definitely the recipe for that. Scaling it and then just firing up the grill. Uh, I use the old trusty Traeger here. And uh, just scale it, oil it down really well. Uh, of course, you're going to clean it, uh, take the guts and stuff out, and gills out, and uh, throw it on the grill. Just cook it really well. And then we also roasted some some veggies and stuff on there, some good root vegetables, and uh, served it with couscous, almost styled like Spanish rice. So came out pretty good. I like that. Old school. Yeah. So just keeping it real. <laughs> so... <laughs> um. So I guess as, as we go through here, Aaron, uh, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Um, best way to reach me is uh, any of the social media accounts. You know, I got uh, the Dibs on Bottom Adventures on Instagram is probably my mostly my mostly frequent in, uh, you know, social media platform. But I've got the Facebook. I've got YouTube. Uh, Dibs on Bottom Adventures on Facebook. Key West Waterman on YouTube. And um, also, you know, you can look me up on the website quick Google search of dibs on bottom. And I'm the first thing that pops up. Yep. There you go. I see it. Nice. And so, uh, we were talking earlier about availability. If somebody wants to, to schedule you, what's the time frame looking like, like they would be able to get on your books. Um, I got a couple days in July. It's booking up pretty quick though. Um, I think people have got cabin fever with this COVID thing and, Everyone's, di- everyone's dying to get out on the deep blue sea and I lo- i'm loving it I'm back to work i'm happy but it's looking like middle of end of july um so for our listeners you gotta check out dibs on bottom well, adventures on uh instagram there's a picture of a <laughs> a 32 pound snowy grouper on deck <laughs> that is massive it's been good lately i cannot complain i think all the the uh <clears throat> the downtime the fish are the fish are just as hungry it's good. They're feeling the effects of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they're not so efficient. So, so uh, one thing we like to do last, last off is just kind of go around and any last like alibis or misfires anybody have. So Aaron, since you're a guest, I'll start with you. Do you have any, any last thoughts? 
I do not. I had a good time. Thanks for having me on, guys. It was uh, it was a pleasure. Nice meeting you. It's my first my first podcast. It was I think it went well. Nice, yeah. Uh, good conversation uh, for sure. So we definitely were glad to have you on, Dustin. Last thoughts. Uh, last thoughts. Hey, Aaron. You know, I kind of want to hit you up for one of these uh, chartered spearfishing trips. It sounds like a a good time. But it was very good talking to you about that and uh, everyone else out there. See you next week. Yeah, so uh, I'll end my last thoughts uh, with kind of my always last thoughts, sort of. But uh, thanks, you know, thanks again, Aaron, for coming on. It was it was awesome, and definitely look forward to here's things calm down, sitting down and having a beer. I got some some ideas and some thoughts uh, I want to run by you, and and uh, just yeah, man, enjoy chatting with you tonight, and uh, look forward to hanging out some more in the future, hopefully. So. I would say thanks to all our listeners for listening. Episode number twenty. So you you guys are the reason that we're uh, we're still cranking along. I still get emails rolling in from people uh, listening around the world, Australia, the U.S. Uh, every you know we were talking earlier. Some of our followers in Canada tuning in. So it's it's great to to see that people around that we're able to connect with you and hope that we're continuing to to do stuff uh sharing some good insights into the hunting and fishing world and you know the eating world as well so uh that's always our basis so like i said earlier show notes are available uh online whatever podcast platform you're listening to and head over to social media give uh aaron's page a look and then your next stop should be over at harvesting nature if you don't already follow us and uh always uh feel free to give us a nice review there on whatever platform you're listening to And uh, thank you guys. Have a good night.